just another drone mike i'm a situationally sensitive snow leopard meredith we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the dalmatian station to talk about our favorite animals what we lack in expertise we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder wow so saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest fin-filled and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia what up mike Oh, you know, Meredith, it's just another day here on the ranch. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the ranch, sitting on the front porch, drinking with Blanche. I've gone full nocturnal mode here. I've been falling asleep when the sun is rising. I've been sleeping through at least the highest point that the sun reaches in the sky. I've been appreciating that the days are going a little bit longer because it gives me a couple extra hours of sunlight that I wouldn't be getting otherwise. So you went from like diurnal right to nocturnal. You didn't even spend a crepuscular time. You didn't pay your crepuscular dues, Mike. I did not. (laughs) No, I'm in full vampire mode. I am waking up as the sun is setting and flying out and... (laughs) Sucking the blood of my victims and then returning back to my comfortable bed in my dark, near windowless coffin enclosure where I sleep. And it's a pretty thrilling existence, I have to say. It seems like it. Your canines are looking a little bit more defined these days. What can I say? I'm blessed with defined canines. What can I say? I'm a bat. Well, that sounds fun. It has its moments, I have to say. It's definitely just the default. I don't know really what any of it means. You know what I'm saying? This is my schedule. I'm a bit of a night owl generally. Yeah, same. Just kind of left to my devices of really only being accountable to myself in terms of time. Yeah. I'm just a late person. And I have to say that I feel like as a culture has to serve some sort of function as, you know, the bit of the night watch type person. Right, right. We have to have those people. Yeah, I feel very Jon Snow. I don't get that reference. It's from the multi-continental hit HBO series Game of Thrones. Have you heard of that? Oh, that thing. Yes, that would explain. I have seen none of it ever. Oh. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what that those references at all it's really pretty good this might be a good time to jump into it for somebody that's not into it do you know any of hbo's shows generally yeah yeah of course but i just i don't know i'm not much of like a fantasy person i love a period drama but i i don't know that's just was never my thing sure the production design's fantastic. It, I think that if a person likes period dramas, they typically like great costumes and great sets and all sure. those kinds of things. Sure. There's an abundance of that in The Game of Thrones. But also, just in terms of modern, up-to-date HBO shows, Watchmen is also very good. I've heard that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very good. And I don't know. I like Westworld. I understand that it's divisive, but I kind of like science fiction, fantasy, genre 
questions about God, those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, we're still working our way through My Brilliant Friend on HBO, which is the Italian import based on the book series, and it's like female psychology in mid-century Naples. So that's more my jam. Like 1950s Naples, mid-that century? Yeah, like 1950s. You have to be specific with Naples. That's true. You're very right. You're very correct. But yeah, it's fantastic. But anyway, this is not a television podcast. No. How was your week in animals? I guess pretty tame. Not much going on. I didn't really see anything crazy. So I don't really have anything to report. I mean, funny animal memes up and down. I did see some some dogs. Somebody had like cut out um, faces of both uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss and Mick Jagger. And they put peanut butter, I guess, around like the opening that they'd cut in their mouths. And then they like held them in front of their dog's faces. And so the dogs are trying to like lick the peanut butter on the outside of these printed out faces. So just like looks like Gene Simmons like wagging his tongue. That's amazing. (laughs) I'll send it to you. It's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds very wonderful. I haven't left my house that many times in the last week. Same. You know, there's birds on the street. The birds are just kind of strutting about. I feel like the pigeons are here in less abundance than they typically are. I wonder where they're getting all their food now that there's no trash cans. I know. Yeah. Street corners. I do. I do worry about them. I came across Anthony on the couch like a couple weeks ago and he was just like upset. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, I'm just worried about the pigeons. Yeah. Where are they going to get their food? And I think, but the thing about pigeons is they have been scrappy for so long. So, so long. They're going to be fine. They're adaptable, if nothing else. I think that in terms of urban creatures, we kind of have the class aves, the pigeons are represented then we have our murine friends the rats yes and then we also have our coleoptera friends our cockroaches right presumably coleoptera and presumably murine i might be wrong on both those points in terms of animals in the city we have pigeons we have rats and we have cockroaches they're kind of the main three i think the trifecta yeah yeah the trifecta I feel like the pigeons are going to be fine. I've heard that the rats are frantic because there's not as much food. And so there's a little bit of like elevated rat intensity. Oh, no. E-R-I. And I have to say anecdotally, like, I don't know that telling the world about my current war with roaches is maybe what I thought my life was going to be. Yeah. But it's what my life has become. And I can honestly tell you that... They are very scrappy. Yes. And they are determined. Yes. And then I'm also determined. Game on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. At the risk of infuriating. And I mean, I can't imagine death by roach, but it seems possible. Yeah. I mean, they've lasted this long for a reason. Yeah. I'm sure some humans had to die as part of that. Yeah. So I'd say in general, my relationship with animals this week, it's certainly intensified. Yeah. I don't really know what else I have to report. I mean, cute dogs and YouTube videos every now and again. Of course. I feel like people are just kind of giving less and less of a fuck about that kind of thing. I feel like there's a little bit of this social norm, this button-uppedness of presenting a certain veneer of how you want to be perceived by your community that's falling away as Mm -hmm. pets are entering Zoom videos and people are embracing that. Oh, yes, here's my dog. Yes. So maybe some more thoughts on that. But otherwise, pretty boring week in animals, if I'm honest. Yeah, same's. 
Well, until we hear about this upcoming creature. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I feel like we should just kind of jump right yeah. in. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Okay, well, you go first. Yes. This week. We seem confused about who's doing what on our odd and even episodes, but we know for sure that your animal presentation is first on odd episodes. Yes. So I guess let's just kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. All right, let's do it. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy, you. Texana we. Texana who. Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Yum yum, let's eat some organic material. Phylum. Cordata. A spine so strong you can sit on it. Class. Mammalia. Mane and tail shampoo. Order. Parasodactyla. Clip, clop, onto it, undulates. Family. Equidae, nay. Genus. Equus. Wild hearts can't be broken. Species. Equus ferris. You might break her body, but you can't break her spirit. It's the wild horse. Oh, my God. Amazing. Aren't you excited? Yeah. Good hint with mane and tail shampoo. That was a good early (laughs) hint. That is the brand that I use for my mane and my tail. Yeah, I remembered. um, I'd always see it on, like, the bottom shelf at Walmart when I was little, when my mom would do her, like, occasional shampoo shopping. And I would just be so intrigued by it. But I would also see it, I think, at my cousins who always had horses growing up. So whatever. Sure. So it's been in my orbit for a long, long time. But I love actually seeing it in people's showers. Yeah, I love using it. I have to say that conditioner is great. What does it smell like? Uh, I'm a bad person to ask about that. It doesn't have like a floral scent or a particular scent, which is another thing I like about it. I don't really like those synthetic scent chemicals. Yeah. So I'd say it has a neutral smell. They don't have like horse-themed scents, like scent of philodendron. Young Colt. Yes. Which would just smell like some like cheap Old Spice type scent. Yeah. Anyhow. Okay. So I actually got the idea for this because I, as I want to do often at night when I'm trying to like calm down, I'll kind of peruse the PBS offerings. And there was a Nova episode about horses and essentially how large a role they play essentially in the development of the human species. Because they've been domesticated starting in like the Central Asian steppes since 3500 BC. Wow. I fell asleep on this Nova, but that was kind of the point. But anyway, I got so far as to kind of see the very beginnings of kind of the horse-human relationship. So these prehistoric humans essentially were first eating the horses until somewhere along the line they learned that these horses could be domesticated and actually ridden in that actually riding them was much more of a useful thing than just relying on, on them for food because they could actually deliver them to a food source and, you know, aid in the hunting of various food sources. So horses and humans have been quite the pair since prehistoric times. Amazing. Which we also see evidence of because there's like cave paintings in India and like the little sco paintings in France that depict horses, horse-like creatures as well. So... Very, very old, old human-animal relationship. So that's kind of what got me going. I was just like watching this video and I'm like, they're so majestic and they're so beautiful and they're so sweet. And so I just wanted to do a little bit more digging about horses. That's great. Yeah. So um, actually, I'm going to do something a little bit different this week in terms of like normally I feel like we talk more about um, these animals 
in general terms rather than like specific species because oftentimes more info is to be found like at the more general levels right of the taxonomy but i actually wanted to go like a little bit further because there's a subspecies that actually makes this even the story a little bit more uh pointed and interesting interesting so we're going to the further reaches of the subspecies so the equus ferris cabalis So that is actually referring to what includes Mustangs, because I wanted to mostly talk about Mustangs today. Like the car or the creature? The creature, which was frustrating because when I typed into Google, like it took so much extra work to get past like car shit. Even when you type in Mustang horse, the first thing that comes up is Mustang horsepower. Fuck you cars. I want to know about the horses. For real. So... That's my bone to pick with Google. But anyway, that's a different day. I think they have a suggestions box. You can just fill out a note card. Oh, perfect. I'll run it on over there later today. So within this Kabbalist, this is referring to like feral horses. So Mustangs are included within this. And what makes them feral horses, as opposed to quote unquote, true wild horses, is that these horses, these Mustangs specifically, are actually descendant from domesticated horses, despite the fact that they're now like feral, essentially wild populations. But there's only one true wild horse, and it lives on the steppes of Central Asia, and it's called, I gotta get this, oh, the Shavalsky horse. Shavalsky's horse. It's the only true wild horse. It's like the Kiang, the wild ass. It sounds like it's kind of in the same region, like southern China. Definitely. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some like, you know, wild horse Kiang relationships happening at some point over this long history. I bet they share some bloodlines. I would hope. Here's hoping. Okay, a very long ago history lesson. So actually horses, the same ones that um, inhabited like Central Asia and Eurasia more generally. So those same horses actually existed in modern day North America, but they were wiped out by the most recent ice age. And I learned to finally looked up what this word meant. Extirpated. Extirpated? Yeah, extirpated is like kind of like a regional extinction almost. So like not all of the wild horses of the world went extinct at the end of the most recent ice age, but the ones in North America did. So that's an example of an extirpation. So a more like small scale extinction, but not like a global extinction. Interesting. Yeah. But there are wild horses in the United States currently. Yes, which I will talk about. Okay, I don't want to get ahead of our horse timeline. Hold your horses, Mike. Nay! (laughs) I'm going to rein it in. Gosh, there's so many horse idioms. Yes, there are. Well, they play a big role in our lives, so anyhow. They sure do. Undulate squad. Team undulates. Okay, so to get to your question, so all of the horses in North America, like I said, extirpated during the most recent ice age. From that point up to about the 15th century, so literally when Columbus arrives in 1492, there had been no horses on the continent. So it was actually reintroducing them during the Columbian exchange. That's interesting. Yes. I feel like it's common to associate horse riding with the native population of the United States, the indigenous people of the United States. Absolutely. And so it's interesting to me to hear that horses were largely absent from the United States until around 1500. It definitely changes my concept of travel and transportation. Exactly. So actually Mustangs themselves are defined as essentially feral 
descendants of Spanish horses or horses that were essentially brought over from Spain into the Spanish colonies, Santa Fe being a huge one. That's kind of where the horse boom happened based out of the Spanish settlement in Santa Fe. So you've got all these Spanish horses, these domesticated Spanish horses that would either be stolen or just escaped or they didn't keep like very good enclosures. So some of the horses would just wander off or they would just be released. So what we know today as Mustangs are the ones that are descendants of these Spanish horses. So they've kind of gone through this like reverse domestication. They went from being, you know, trained and used to being around humans to now being part of what is like the United States wild horse population. Though technically they're not wild horses. Well, wild horses couldn't drag me away. No, hell no. From Santa Fe, where I'm alone, but I ain't lonely. Good for you. Those little Rolling Stones, Alan Menken mashup. You know, a mashup that has been waiting to happen. Thank you for that. I'm here for you. You birthed it right here and right now. So I love that observation you had about the Native Americans' relationship to the horse because I had essentially the same realization that, oh my gosh, there's this whole, whole, whole time period where I was not aware necessarily that they weren't interacting with horses on this continent. So it was kind of between like 1500 and onward that that relationship between Native populations and the horse really developed. For instance, like the Comanches, the lords of the Southern Plains, they are so linked with horses and horse imagery that even like their seal has a Comanche on horseback. But that essentially all happened within like that 500 year period. They didn't have necessarily a relationship that went back millennia like they did in say like what is now Mongolia. Sure. Yeah, super interesting. Where it's impossible to separate the culture of the people from the horse itself. Right, because now they've become so, so, I mean, inextricably linked. Wasn't there that instrument, that Mongolian sort of stringed instrument that's played with a bow? It's almost played like a cello, but I don't think it's quite as long of a scale as a cello. Hmm. The foundational rhythm of the music is a la gallop. That makes sense. I'm not an expert in this, but I believe that it's like bump, 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 bump. And they play it with the fiddle. You know, there's that modern thing that's happening where these traditional musicians that are playing a relatively old style are on relatively old instruments fused with modern music. Oh, yes, yes, of course. All that Silk Road ensemble stuff. Well, no, it's different than that. It's more like popular music specifically is what I'm thinking of, this particular Mongolian horse people music. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, if you look up Mongolian horse music, Uh you can find out a lot. Yeah, it seems like, I guess, the reintroduction of horses into native cultures essentially followed roughly the same blueprint in the sense that first these cultures were eating them and then found how useful they would be for riding and, for instance, like allowing a buffalo to be more easily taken down because you can actually like match the speed of a buffalo with some with the help of a horse. A bison, bison, bison. A bison, 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 of course. So say we're in kind of the settlement of Santa Fe, you have all of these Spanish quote unquote masters who have taken native people as servants. And it's through this interaction that actually these native people learn the skills of horse handling and then are able to via escape or generationally pass down this knowledge, as well as all these processes of horse trading between various tribes. So eventually this, all this information and these skills just kind of radiate outward. And not to mention too, you had French settlements like Canada and the Mississippi Basin and also in the Great Lakes region where you also have 
horses introduced, as well as the Spanish settlements in Florida. So we have essentially a lot of the same things happening in different uh, regions and settlements around the United States, current United States that are introducing all these horses. But probably the majority of these wild horses, these herds, are definitely still going to be Western United States. And over half of the wild horse population lives in Nevada. Wow. Yeehaw. I think of the geography of the West as being more expansive. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm not surprised that that's where they settled up. And I think in general that people are more populous in the kind of coastal regions Exactly. So if I were a horse and I had to pick somewhere to go, I wouldn't want to live on the farmlands of the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to live in an urban setting. I think mm-hmm. that I would pick Nevada or maybe Utah even. Yeah. So they're all over those areas. But I was interested in the fact that there's so many in Nevada, but um, including this one kind. So there's a lot of interesting, like, I don't want to say breeding, but it's like interesting phenotypes that have shown up through these kind of isolated wild populations. So some will have just different gene expression, obviously. So like different colors, different body builds, different all kinds of things. But there's this particular kind in Nevada called curly horses. And it's all a bunch of horses that have like coats, like labradoodles, or it looks like they've gone like total 80s, like crimped mane mania. And they are the cutest. I spent a lot of time this morning looking through curly haired horse pictures curly hair curly horse curly horse curly horse curly horse horse breed images oh (laughs) it looks like it has a perm i know they're so cute this one literally looks like it has a bleached perm (laughs) that's so funny its entire hair is this kind of tawny brown and then it has this bright blonde curly mane and tail and even its hair it's like fuzzy yes they're so cute i want one i want to pet one they just look adorable but speaking of characteristics of these wild horses i just have to quote what wikipedia had under their description which i can only think of as like an italian mother describing her ideal daughter-in-law small compact good bone very hardy Small, compact, good bone, very hardy. Yeah. Gross. Another interesting fact about um, essentially these horses and their existence in the United States. So they're actually these herds, these wild roaming herds of horses are controlled by the Bureau of Land Management. They manage the free ranging horse population, mostly across the Western U.S. But this runs into controversy as far as how are we to think about these creatures. They're not an invasive species. They're an introduced species. So meaning that they don't naturally occur here. But then there's the argument that at one point they did naturally live here. Just they were wiped out by the ice age. So there's just this argument since these horses are going to be grazing on public lands, maybe at the expense of other livestock that grazes on public lands. It's, you know, how do we view these horses and the amount of free range space that they should have versus, say, cows or other livestock that also need the grass. But to get back into what we talked about with the Kiang in terms of how these equuses eat and their hind gut fermentation in their sesum, they can live in terrains with less nutritious vegetation because of this digestive system that they have. Whereas cows need more nutritious grass to be able to survive. So this argument potentially doesn't hold much weight in that horses are able to successfully live off more arid, less 
vegetated lands because they're able to digest it and gain energy from that versus cows that have a different digestive system need something more nutritious to live off of. Cows are actually more delicate than in terms of what they can eat than the wild horse. Exactly. That's amazing. Also interesting that there's no... They're really the predator situation with these guys is not a major issue. So wolves and mountain lions are probably their biggest predators. But even in that case, like predation is not a very good way to manage herd size. It's just not that effective. I mean, actually, wild horses are probably adult wild horses are actually probably pretty difficult to take down. So often, like, mountain lions will just kind of pick off the young or someone who's strayed from the pack. So, yeah, predators aren't the hugest deal, and they don't do a whole lot in terms of keeping the herds contained. So as far as that goes, the Bureau of Land Management actually will control the herds by essentially taking a bunch out and trying to adopt them out to people, to private owners, But then they run into issues because there's more horses than people who want to adopt horses. Horses are very expensive. It's a huge responsibility. Very labor-intensive pets to have. So then this leads to accusations of, you know, horse meat sales and all kinds of things as far as what is actually happening to these horses that are removed from these wild populations. Well, that's all very interesting. All kinds of things I didn't really know about these creatures we share our great country with. Regarding your grass digestion situation. Sure. I remember that the Kiang, which is the wild ass, Uh which is also an equus. Right. That also lives in Asia. Yes. That part of Asia specifically. Yes. Had a very large sesum, which allowed it to digest sedges in a way that made it extra fierce, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly it. Did you see anything about the sesum of your wild horse or your wild horse's digestive system? I didn't really go into it much more than just as it related to how they pasture and how they graze and what they're able to graze upon. Mm. But there's something about that hind gut fermentation in the sesum and what the sesum is able to do, I think, in terms of putting... Not much nutritional value to very good use is where the horse really benefits because they can essentially live in pretty arid, poorly vegetated areas. Sure. They just have to eat a lot of it. And again, just to recap, the sesum is between the small and large intestines. It goes like stomach, small intestines, sesum, large intestines, butt. But the sesum is like where the appendix is on humans. Mm-hmm. So if they have a enlarged sesum, like you said, the hindgut fermentation, yes, in the back of their gut system is where the delicious grasses and things are fermented. Right, that helps them digest it better. Apparently, it's different than ruminators, right, which are like the cows. cows and stuff like that, right, where they will vomit up the stuff and then take it back in like foregut fermentation and hindgut fermentation. Right. Right. And I learned an interesting fact. Horses do not vomit, which can make them colicky and be a real health risk. But horses don't puke, y'all. Wow. Well, I guess that that helps narrow down. (laughs) This is like a 
five minute mysteries thing or whatever, or like an encyclopedia Brown thing where you read it. And it's like, how did encyclopedia Brown know that the vomit in the barn was not from the horse and had to be from a cow? Right. Totally. Thereby compromising this guy's alibi. Right. And you're like, well, because horses and asses utilize their sesum and they don't vomit or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Horses don't puke, y'all. Look at us. We're solving crimes, Meredith. Every day. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much everything unless you have more questions. So I didn't really get into too much of like, I could have gone into horse parts. Like, what are the withers? What's the group? But we can save that for another time. Yeah, I think that's fun. I think that was a lot of really good horse information. Thank you. Do you feel like maybe you are feeling some sort of jealousy of the feral Mustang just running about in the hills of Nevada? Yes, I totally am. That seems just like, especially with one of those long haired curly moments that those curly horses were experiencing. I want to be that horse with just a long crimped mane standing, standing, looking out over a mountain vista. Well, I love that for you. I think that's a great place to kind of, you know, leave us with some nice horse energy. Great. Break time. This Wednesday at 10 on AMTV, Animal Music Television. This is the true story. True story. Of seven strange animals. Picked to live in a barn. And have their lives taped. To find out what happens. When animals stop being symbiotic. Who ate my hay? It start getting real. The real barn. Rural San Antonio. So last week, I met the most amazing man over a delicious undercooked steak. He's just like gotten into my body in a way I never knew was possible. And he's like wreaking havoc on my insides. But I think that's just what true love feels like, you know? What does it feel like? What does it feel like? Well, I'm like tired and nauseated like all of the time and sometimes my belly really really hurts and I can't really eat anything but that's just how my sweet little tapeworm shows me that he loves me who knew that my first love wouldn't be kissing me on my lips but instead kissing my entire digestive tract raw from the inside my doctor even said that one day I'll be able to meet him face to face when his segments start showing up in my poops oh it'll be the most romantic day of my life It's no surprise this sleek raptor dove into my heart at over 200 miles per hour. It moves faster than any other animal. It's black to slate gray back, white to rusty underparts, and in some subspecies, Rufus Wash near the head just leaves me with a heightened sense of anticipation. Ooh, ooh, I feel the anticipation! It's welling up inside of me! Mate with me for life, beautiful peregrine falcon. Let us engage in our aerial acrobatic courtship maneuver. Pass me that delicious grouse in midair. Flap your wings for me and I'll flap back, beautiful peregrine. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Life is pretty cool. Philo. Cordata. My spine needs to be aligned. Class. Mammalia. I like gum hairy. Order. Rodentia. The teeth never stop growing. Family. 
Heterocephaly day. Different heads? Genus. Heterocephalus. Wait, are we talking about phalluses? Species. Glaber. The naked mole rat. It's eusocial. It's naked. It's neither a true rat nor mole. Oh my gosh, this makes me think of the cartoon Kim Possible. Really? Where she had a little naked mole rat animal friend. Oh. Yeah. I guess that's better than a naked mole rat human friend. That sounds disgusting. It does. I have an announcement, Meredith. Okay. There is no schedule on my mollusk journey, just for the record. Okay. In researching the scaphopod, our tusk shell friend that burrows into the substrate of the ocean. Yes, yes. I've just completely reconsidered the concept of time, and maybe we don't experience time the way the scaphopods do. I know for a fact we don't. So I'm just encouraging all of our loyal listeners to know that I'm still on the mollusk journey. But this week, I just needed another mammal. Sometimes you just got to go with what you know. Tax facts. Kingdom animalia, phylum chordata. That means they have spines generally, a dorsal nerve cord. Mammalia, they're hairy, blah, blah, blah. We know what mammals are. Okay, rodentia. They're defined by their single pair of continuously growing incisors in both their upper and lower jaw. So their teeth constantly grow and have to be kept short by gnawing. Yes. That's why you have to give your rodent pets like guinea pigs and hamsters and gerbils and capybaras delicious paper towel cardboard tube for them to gnaw on because otherwise yes. their teeth will just keep growing. That's why they'll gnaw on the cage and gnaw on damn near anything that you put in front of them. It's an instinctual thing and it's also practical that if they do not, then their teeth will become too long. Yes, For real. About 40% of mammal species are rodents, which is the same percent of insect species that are Coleoptera. So just like the beetles that represent nearly half of insect species, rodents represent nearly half of mammal species, 40%, 2,277 species described so far. And a thing about mammals versus insects is that they tend to be kind of bigger. So new mammals are not being described every day, right? but new insects are being described, if not every day, at least once a week. Sure, (laughs) sure. I have no data to back up that claim. (laughs) Rodents, like I said, guinea pigs, hamsters, gerbils. We also have mice, rats, squirrels, prairie dogs, chipmunks, chinchillas, porcupines, beavers, capybaras, etc. Marmots? Marmots? I actually don't know. I don't know much about marmots. I always thought that marmot was something like vermin or rodent, like a term that's used to describe like a big swath of creatures. But I think it's an actual creature. And I saw a video of like a really fat one just like, standing by the side of the road and people were trying to feed it and it was just like not flinching didn't want the food but he clearly looks like he loves food anyway marmots are a genus of rodents okay with characteristically short but robust legs like me. It seems like because they're at the genus, they are all like marmots. It's like saying different types of beavers. Like a, it doesn't appear that a beaver is a marmot. It looks like there's marmots in the old world and the new world. Yes. Different subgenuses. I'm so into marmots. But we're not here to talk about marmots. No. We're here to talk about naked mole rats. We have a quick lagomorph update. This is on rabbits, hares, and pikas. Yeah. <laughs> they do have continuously growing incisors. And so lagomorphs were once considered rodents, but are now in a separate order, the lagomorpha. Okay. The lagomorphs and the rodents are sister groups. 
they share a clade, the gliris, which is the continuously growing incisor clade. And also apparently lagomorphs have four incisors, which is just, I can't deal with that if I'm honest. I guess we do too, right? It sounded like they have an extra set, but I can't, I don't know. So now we're on to the family, the heterocephalidae. It has only one extant species, the naked mole rat. So from family, genus, species, it's all just naked mole rat. Okay. Got it. So heterocephalidae, let's break it apart. Hetero is different. Right. And then ceph refers to the head. So I take this to mean that they are different headed. Well, what makes this head different? What makes this head different from all the different other heads? So there was a paper in 2014 by Bruce D. Patterson called A Newly Recognized Family from the Horn of Africa, the Heterocephalidae, where Bruce writes that a diverse array of cranial, dental, postcranial, external, and ecological characteristics distinguishes that are heterocephalus from other African mole rats. So literally differences in their head. The cranial, dental, postcranial, external, and ecological characteristics. So they have different structure in the bones of their head. Whoa. Or in their skull shape, I guess you could say. Sure. Bruce goes on. These differences equal or exceed those used to diagnose caviomorph families and justify recognizing the naked mole rat in its own family, Heterocephalidae Landry 1957. The taxonomic arrangement poses questions for the interrelationship of fossil and extant mole rats and brings time equivalence to the ranks assigned to the major clades. History cognaths? Can't help you. Can't help myself. I couldn't really find too much information on this, but an interesting line of inquiry. It seems like this, because now when you see taxonomic ranks, the more you get into this, you'll see the name of the rank, then the name of the person that it's credited to, and then the year. Right. Which we know from our just casual research. So it's interesting to me that this is a newly recognized family, the heterocephalidae, but the rank goes back to 1957. So I think that there's some interesting taxonomic information regarding the classification of the naked mole rat specifically. Genus is the same, only one extant genus. Species Glabber, I don't know what the name is all about, Mm -hmm. but it's also called the Sand Puppy, so we're going to call it the Sand Puppy. Ew. So the Sand Puppy is native to the drier parts of tropical grasslands of East Africa, mainly southern Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. Okay. Mole rats are neither true moles, which would be in the family Tilipidae. Okay. Or true rats, which would be in the genus Rattus. <laughs> Mole rats are generally in the family Bathyergidae. Bathyergidae? Okay. Bathyergidae. And so I think that this is where the naked mole rat was classified before it was in its own family. Okay. <sighs> Tax facts is really interesting and I feel like gives me a lot of insight into, I guess, the science of taxonomy. Uh-huh. But it's very interesting to kind of go down this swamp rabbit nest of information about the taxonomy because it I feel like it helps me kind of put these creatures into boxes and be like, oh, this is the relation and this is the relation. But sometimes you get stuck on this little packet of fun information where it's like, oh, well, it's actually 
still in flux. The ranking and the classifications of animals is still a very alive science. It's still a very active right. science where things are happening. Right. And maybe we don't think of it that way. Yeah. It is hard to not get caught up in the like this idea that taxonomic rank is something that's just always already been with us. This was something constructed based on what we've been able to observe, not based on any sort of like truth, really. Exactly. So the naked mole rat is kind of intense looking. Yes, it is. They're about three to four inches long. They weigh about an ounce. They're mostly hairless. They have wrinkly pink or yellowish skin. They look like one of those naked sphinx cats, but a mole rat version. But not as cute. They have a bunch of really interesting adaptations, like very tiny eyes, poor visual acuity, because they spend most of their life underground in complete darkness. Right. They right. don't have an insulating layer of the skin, and they can't, they also lack pain sensitivity in the skin. Whoa. They have thin and short legs. They are fierce and moving underground. They can go backwards just as fast as they can go forward. <laughs> they have these enormous protruding teeth, which they use to dig. Yes. And then their lips can close behind their teeth. So the teeth are sticking out of their closed lips so they don't get dirt in their mouth. Well, shout out to William Defoe in the lighthouse. No spoilers. About a quarter of their musculature is used to keep their jaw closed while digging. And that's the same proportion that's utilized in a human leg. I think in one human leg, there's a quarter of our musculature utilized to move our leg. Okay. I, I That's my understanding of this sentence. In each leg. So half of our musculature is for our legs, which kind of adds up. Sure, 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 sure. But they have the equivalent amount of musculature as one leg in their jaw closure muscles. Oh, my gosh. I can't help. There's just this one woman at work who's just got, like, the craziest mouth. And I just keep picturing her <laughs> with her long, ever-growing front teeth and her lips that seem to just, like, close around them. Well, here's to going back into the office sometime in the next 15 years and seeing her one more yeah, time. Right. <laughs> so they have very low metabolic and respiratory rates as an adaptation to the limited availability of oxygen in their tunnels. Totes. It can survive for five hours in air that contains 5% oxygen. <gasps> Humans need 19.5% oxygen in air to survive. So it could be in an environment that has a quarter of the oxygen that it takes for a human to survive, and it will survive. That's crazy. For five hours. Uh-huh. Whoa. And then when it's deprived of oxygen... Rather than go into acidosis, it has a special system that somehow prevents that, which is a great line of inquiry for anybody who wants to know more. Yes. They are the only mammalian thermoconformers as opposed to a thermoregulator. Okay. They're almost entirely ectothermic, which means cold-blooded in how they regulate their body temperature. Right. If they're cold, they'll huddle up with their friends or go closer to the surface. <gasps> and if they're hot, they'll kind of get away from everybody as a way of managing their temperature within their community. As I said, they don't have sensitivity to pain on their skin. They actually lack a neurotransmitter in their mm. cutaneous sensory fibers. And if they're injected with substance P, which is a type of neurotransmitter, the pain signaling works as it does in other mammals, but only with cas... But I don't know. But I didn't understand all of this. But they're essentially lacking 
this substance P, this neurotransmitter. Okay. And if it's replaced with a synthetic neurotransmitter, then it works. Like in the lab, they've isolated this. This is the kind of shit where I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know anything. You know what I mean? Right, right. (laughs) Even as I'm talking about, oh, it's so cool. We're learning so much through taxonomy. It's always just like, oh yeah, substance P, the neurotransmitter far out. Yeah. Taxonomy is like preschool level animal knowledge. (laughs) Totally. We're like, we did it. I, reading about it, it's kind of like some of the stuff that I hear my sister talking about uh, when she's talking medicine is that it's like mm-hmm. pathways and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. The naked mole rat is resistant to cancer. They specifically have a high resistance to tumors. Mm. They'll live up to 32 years, which is a tremendously long time for a rodent. It's the longest lifespan of a rodent. And apparently the mortality rate of the species does not increase with age, which is unlike most mammals. Weird. I know. The behavior of the naked mole rat is very interesting. They're eusocial, which is E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L. Okay. There are only two eusocial mammals. The other is the Damaraland mole rat, which is in a little bit more southern Africa, a little south of our naked mole rat friend. Okay. Eusocial is the highest classification of society. It's similar to ants, termites, bees, wasps, some crustaceans. Okay. And in a eusocial society, everyone has a role. So there will be a queen, and then there will be workers, and there will be guards, and there's like a caste system. Okay. So these naked mole rats will have a queen. There will be only one of these divas in a colony. She'll breed with one to three males. They can breed at one year of age. And then every other individual in the colony is a non-breeding male or female. Whoa. So... These non-reproducing members of the colony will cooperatively care for the pups of the queen. They'll keep them from straying, feed them, groom them, dig fiercer tunnels, provide warmth. (laughs) The queens live for 13 to 18 years. They'll be very hostile to other females that start to behave like queens or produce the Uh hormones to become queens. Because the queens are the only reproducing ones, so all the other non-reproducing females have suppressed reproduction system so they'll have smaller (gasps) ovaries they won't have the same hormonal situation but when a queen dies a new queen has to take her place how is she chosen well they'll fight over it and sometimes (sighs) it gets really messy but other individuals will fight to be queen and once they assert the dominance then their hormones will do whatever they do and the space between her vertebrae and her backbone expands so she can bear pups and her ovaries kind of get situated. Uh, the gestation oh. takes about 70 days, three to 12 pups in a typical litter, average of 11, as many as 28. Oy. They'll breed once a year in the wild, but in captivity, they'll breed all year long and can pump out a litter every 80 days. I remember seeing these guys at the zoo. Yeah, they have them at the Cincinnati Zoo for sure. Yeah, there's like a whole, it's like, um, it's almost like a huge ant farm. You know how like in a little ant farm, you see all their little tunnels and everything and you kind of watch them move through it. It's the same thing, but on a larger scale Right. for naked mole rats. Right. And then the rest of the colony are workers. They're sterile. They divide their task by SIE. What the hell does that mean? Oh, they divide their tasks by size. Generally, the smaller individuals will focus on gathering food and maintaining the nests. And the larger ones are kind of reactive against attacks. Okay, that makes sense. And then they're divided into worker castes. Like I said, some are primarily tunnelers, some are primarily soldiers. 
there's frequent workers and infrequent workers. So maybe they'll perform the same task, but the infrequent workers will be at a much slower rate. So that's also interesting. (laughs) Sounds like me right now. Yeah, same. (laughs) Colonies can be from 20 to 300 individuals and average at 75 individuals, which is kind of a lot of naked mole rats. Yeah. I mean, the elephant in the room here is that they just look like little wiggly wieners with teeth. They're kind of severe. So I'm just imagining a colony of 300 little wriggling wieners with teeth. It's like nightmare stuff. Well, maybe to you. So they eat mainly very large tubers. I was going to ask. (laughs) They love their taters. They love tubers. (laughs) They can be really large. It says that they could weigh up to a thousand times the body weight of a typical mole rat. So if a mole rat's an ounce, that's a 62 pound tuber. Yes. Get it. That's like kind of a lot of potato. Sounds delicious. Or potato-esque, nutrient-rich root vegetable. Yes. A single tuber can feed a colony for months, even years. And then, this is crazy, they'll eat the inside of the tuber, but leave the outside of the tuber so that it can regenerate. They know what they're doing. The eyes on them will sprout and then make new taters, tuber taters. It's insane. And they have special symbiotic bacteria in their intestines, which helps ferment the fibers. And then they also eat their own poop. But maybe that's a eusocial behavior to share hormones with the queen, which is kind of a lot. Ew. Yeah. And they have a couple predators. There's the rufous-beaked snake and the Kenyan sand boa. Uh Uh-oh. That sounds super scary. Yeah. Also various raptors. Of course. And they're generally pretty safe underground, but they're most vulnerable when they're like making mounds or ejecting soil to the surface. Sure. And then they are not threatened. They're widespread and numerous in the drier regions of East Africa. I love that. That's the extent of my naked mole rat information. Do you have any naked mole rat questions, queries, quandaries, things I could elucidate do they have ears i can't remember yeah i'm pulling up my naked mole rat picture right now and it looks like they do have ears god that is a intense creature they really are and they always kind of i think because of the way their mouths are shaped they always look like they're upset or like almost about to scream yeah they're definitely look like they're about to scream i think it's the way that their lips curl around their teeth is pretty weird too Like that girl in the office. Yeah. My office, not the show. They almost look like a sort of salamander. (laughs) Ew, a mammalian salamander. I see like ear circles. It's kind of like, what's that called on frogs? Where? Oh. That thing behind their uh, head. Their nuptial pad? No. No. Hang on. Frog ear. Oh, the tympanum. Oh, yeah. It almost looks like that, but like a little bit cylindrical out. I don't really have any good, accurate information on naked mole rat ears specifically. That's okay. I can't imagine that they have like super refined hearing though. So it's all good. The queens weigh about two ounces. Okay. So the queens are significantly bigger than the normal ones. Sounds good to me. Okay. Well, then I'll leave us with this. That if these creatures are eusocial, if they have sorts of castes and they divide their tasks by physical size and then individuals tend to be kind of on one track, they tend to be specialized diggers or Mm -hmm. whatever, that maybe humans are eusocial as well. 
Whoa. It's a bit of a controversial idea. Yeah. Some people don't believe it, but by some definitions of eusocial and some interpretations of human behavior, it could be argued that humans are eusocial. All right. But I get, mm, there's a lot to that. But we just have a formalized system. You know, the queen is the only one in her colony, in her home that reproduces. That's generally true in a home situation there's one person who okay reproduces and then the care of the young is passed on to others mm-hmm. and individual people tend to have specialized professions so although the naked mole rat lacks a currency that we know about it's still kind of the same thing yeah you're kind of in your lane and by contributing it's also the argument that humans create sort of meta-organisms with cities mm-hmm. and that if you zoom out and you consider the city as a meta-organism, it requires a certain amount of input in terms of food and right. materials and resources and then has a certain amount of output in terms of waste and whatever. So it becomes then a meta-organism made up of many other smaller organisms existing in a cooperative environment. Right. I guess where I get uncomfortable with this kind of thing is where our roles are chosen based on like science or biology or something like that, but more like human imposed structures of worth and goodness and um, essentially socially constructed things. And there's value judgments based on where what lane you end up in. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a big problem. But we don't know. Maybe the naked mole rats are sitting around value judging everyone that's not a queen. Sure. Sure. I was going to say, I can't speak to, you know, what sorts of social constructs exist in the naked mole rat communities, but. Sure. You can only speak to your experience as. Exactly. Not a non-naked mole rat. Right. Well, this seems like a great place to take a break. Sounds like it. In these uncertain times, we are all faced with new hurdles to achieve our previous levels of productivity. Social distancing is especially difficult for creatures that live in a colony setting. Ants are everywhere, and their colonies are especially ill-suited to maintain a social distance. Six feet, even when they are ant feet, is much too vast a distance for optimal productivity. Which is why Brand Clubby is thrilled to introduce Social Dist Ants, social distancing solutions for all ants. Social Dist Ants is a complete solution. Turn to us for ant masks, ant gloves, ant washing stations, sanitizer, disinfect ant, ant wipes, and more products are available every day. Visit the Brand Clubby web portal now to see all ant-related products. Brand Clubby is so innovative that new products are added every day. And other lines are available for other colony-based creatures. Brand Clubby will be our salvation. we have here today? Uh, Meredith, it's allergy season. I am hopped up on nasal spray and allergy medicine. I don't know that I'm the most reliable smeller. What are your nares telling you? I think I'm getting some like organic alfalfa. 
as well as some barley chunks. Oh, that sounds like the feed bag. It does. I think we're in the feed bag. <laughs> How thrilling. Well. Frankie from Montana asks, where do elephants keep their personal belongings on long trips? Oh, well, that's a great question. I've never thought about this. I think that we can say for sure that they don't keep them in their trunks. That would be like keeping something in your nose. Yeah. I think that where we would use a trunk, where humans would use a trunk, elephants, well, I don't know. I guess that this comes down to the definition of trunk. <laughs> Do you think that elephants have foot lockers in addition to their sort of nose situation, their proboscis? Proboscis? I, I just, I have never personally seen an elephant, let alone one with a foot locker. I think a footlocker would be like the only way to go unless you had some sort of like elephant shoulder bag. Yeah, maybe they have like saddlebags almost. Maybe like elephants. Maybe we just don't know much about elephant saddlebag fashion. Yeah, seems like it. I mean, let's not overthink it. Elephant backpack. Yeah, that feels right. I was going to say maybe they use some sort of like elephant storage and transportation app, like a make space, but for elephants. But I don't know that they are that good with smartphones. Right. Where would they keep it? They don't, elephants don't usually have pockets. Right. They'd have to keep it in their elephant backpack. Right. Or maybe they'd get one of those clip-on things like you see with people when we used to be able to go to the gym. Yeah. Where they have their phone clipped to their arm. Maybe the elephants have something like that. Oh, that's cute. But then where do, again, where what do they clip on their water bottle like that? I think they have yeah. backpacks. I'm going with yeah, backpacks. Yeah, I think we should just go with backpacks and then the occasional like high fashion affalant who loves a good saddlebag moment. All right. A fish position. Yeah, a fish position for sure. Ding, ding, ding. 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 So, Clory from Portland asks, which animal would you most want to ride on a roller coaster with? I'm going to go with a sloth. Okay. Because I feel like they'd just be like, whoa. (laughs) And then as soon as it was over, they'd be like, that was crazy. Yeah. I think mine was more like visually based. Because I wanted some bang for my buck in terms of, like, what animal would I most love to see, like, really enjoying themselves going down a big hill? And I thought about, like, the alligator. Because he could just, like, put his tiny little arms up in the air and then open his mouth really wide. And, like, think about what a great picture that would take for, like, the souvenir pictures that you can buy when you get off of the roller coaster. That would be a really great picture, Meredith. It'd be so cute. I think that So I go with alligator. I think that's a good answer. I'm going to go to sloth. I think that for both of our answers, though, we need to consider a radical redesign of roller coaster seating and harnessing situations to be able to accommodate these animals. For sure. So I would just like to, in this situation, advocate for adaptive technology. Sure, sure, sure. Of course. Yeah. Without question. So we've got a sloth, who I actually think would make a really great um, photo op as well, because he would just look so, like, bored with it. (laughs) Well, that's what we should do, Meredith. We should get in the same car, and you could be sitting next to the alligator, and then I could be behind the alligator, and the sloth could be next to me behind you. I think that would be a good roller coaster car arrangement. Oh, that would be so fun. Next time. Next time. At King's Island. Or Cedar Point. Or Cedar Point. 
repping like op- opposing amusement parks here. Yeah, well, you know, one regularly appears on lists of top ten roller coasters with several claims to fame, and another one just is like, well, we have the Beast, and then we built the Son of Beast with this loopy thing, and had to close it down because this loop on a wooden roller coaster is stupid. So I will claim that Cedar Point is a superior music. Oh my gosh, I can't even begin to entertain like all the inaccuracies you just threw out there. This is not the time or the place, but all I'm saying is there was no Brady Bunch episode that took place at fucking Cedar Point. Okay. All right. Stu from Manitoba asks... Wait, was that our fish position? <laughs> Don't change the subject. We have not decided uh, on an official <laughs> position. Stu's going to have to wait. About the creatures or the superior amusement park? We can agree on the creatures that would be fun to ride roller coasters. With. Yeah. We can't agree on the superior That's a, yeah. amusement park. That's a house divided. So our okay. fish position is one roller coaster car, four seats. Meredith is next to the alligator in the front. Yes. I'm behind the alligator and the sloth is behind Meredith. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. ding. Now, Stu from Manitoba asks... What does a jackal wear to work? Great question. Well, I think that the jackals are telecommuting right now, just like the rest of us. So I imagine sweatpants and then business casual to business serious from the waist up. Yeah, I was so not considering the telecommuting, but I was just thinking, you know, like jackals kind of have to be ready for anything. You know, they're scavengers, so they need some like you know, good motion. I was really digging like an 80s tracksuit moment, like with the swish swish material. Mm. So maybe I can combine that. So they've got like a nice like business cash polo shirt on the top. And then on the bottom, they've got their swish swish pants. I like that. I think that's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. Because they can still be ready for anything when they need to like, when they get word that there's just a great caribou down. Oh, wait. <laughs> Jackals and caribous don't interact. An antelope, maybe. If there's a delicious antelope and it needs to get down to business, it needs to yeah, leave, it, it just... leave, leave its place of business to go get down to business with the jackal carcass. Yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah. I see all of that. Right on. So a fish position be swish swish pants on the bottom, polo shirt on the top. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Well, Meredith, another thrilling episode of Animal Fan Club has concluded... I love it. I hope you have a wonderful weekend of animals, and uh, I guess I'll see you next time. See you next time on Animal Fan Club. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal 